Hey everybody, it's Jonathan Tony. Welcome to my podcast. America was like, we need another 30-something-year-old white man to start a podcast. And so I stepped up, and you're welcome, America. As I record this introduction, there is currently a dust bowl or something that came over from the Sahara that is flooding the skies. I don't know if by the time this thing airs, if the apocalypse will have taken place or what's happened since. So if this is a message that the future aliens who come and do research on Earth finds, just letting you know, this podcast was the voice of the people. Some would say the most influential media of our day and age. And uh, the other thing I want the aliens to know is that Miles Jack wasn't down. Anyway, I am not a world traveler. I've traveled to various parts of the world, and I've realized something. I really like America. I like where people speak English, and I can get free refills, and it's just, you know, genuinely comfortable. I wish I loved traveling as much as I say that I love to travel. You know, it feels it gives you so much pride when you're like, yeah, we love traveling. Oh my gosh, we've been all these places. I have friends that love traveling, and now I get to live vicariously through their photos. I had some friends that just went to the Grand Canyon. I was like, wow, look at these pictures that I didn't have to be there to take, and it was just just a wonderful feeling to know that I have friends that who can travel for me. So with that in mind, today we are talking about missions work, and. If you're a child that grew up in youth group, you have probably been on some kind of a missions trip. And I, when I was younger, my sister would go to like Ecuador and I think El Salvador and all these places I could not wait to go. And then I ended up going in, in high school and I loved it. It was great. But what we would do is basically show up to these schools, do a few skits about Jesus, mime these videos out that were in Spanish and we didn't know what we were actually saying, but we just dance around. And then you play with the kids, you take some awesome photos so you can show the people who supported you, look how much we loved on these kids. And then we would go back to the hotel and screw around. And it was, honestly, it was great. And I, and if my daughter grows up and she wants to go on a mission trip like that, I'm going to fully support it because it gave me a lot of perspective. It helped, and it was just fun. But then getting older, I've like started to think, was that really effective? Like, did they need us to go down there and hand out lollipops? Maybe, maybe. I think it was good, but I I ended up seeing the play, The Book of Mormon, and in it, these, these Mormons go over to Uganda, and they go and they preach their message, and the Ugandans are like, we've seen you white people before, you come here, you tell us your religion, and then you don't do anything for us, and you leave, and I was like, that's actually a really good point, we do do that a lot, but I'm, I'm fully... Uh, I, I fully believe in the power of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I grew up in it. I believe it now. I think it's important. But there's this other element I've been wondering about where it's like, what about the service? Like, is it good enough to just go over there and preach? I personally, I don't think so. I think there may be some other things we need to actually do. Or if you're going to do that, maybe it's not something that you can accomplish in a week where you just go and you do these skits. It might be something where you need to go and actually live with the people, live in the community community get some skin in the game in that way. So with that in mind, I thought it would be really interesting to talk to my wife's grandfather, Ron White, who has been doing trips all over the world for a couple of decades now, and he hands out glasses and does eye exams for the people there. And so it's a different type of ministry. It's a different type of missions work. And I actually went with him on one trip, and it was not my thing. So with that in mind, I have a lot of respect for what he does and what he's done. We're going to talk about that today and some of the ideas around uh, missions work. So we are here with my grandfather-in-law. Is that the right term? 
Yeah. Sure, we're going to go with that. My, grandpa, my wife's grandfather, Ron White, and he is from Ocala, Florida, my hometown. Uh, what's funny is Brittany and I, my wife, I knew her from back in the day, and we would hang out at your house. Then we disconnected for a few years, ended up back together when we lived in D.C., and I found myself back in Ocala quite a bit, staying with uh, Ron White here. So, Ron, tell us, I mean, we call him Papa, though, so I'll probably use that throughout the rest of the interview. Let's talk a little bit about your background. So what we're going to talk about today, though, is uh, the missionary work that uh, Papa Ron has done all over the world, so many trips. But I want to get to know a little bit about your background a little bit. Tell, tell everybody what your history is, born and raised in Ocala, and you're a Marine. Well, actually, I was born in Tennessee, okay. but moved to Ocala when I was like four years old. Mm-hmm. So I still consider Ocala my hometown because, you know, I grew up there and I went back there after I was working overseas in mm-hmm. the military and so forth. So Yeah. When yeah. Uh, when did you become a r- Marine? Uh, 1959. You know, you read stories about training in the Marine Corps and you think, I ah, can't be that bad, huh? Believe me, <laughs> it and is. How old were you when you became a Marine? Uh, 18. Wow. Yeah, these drill instructors are kind of crazy. And they harass you and hit you and beat you when you're in boot camp. The whole idea is when you go to war and somebody tells you to charge that machine gun that's shooting uh, 500 bullets a minute. Right. You're not afraid to go with that because you're more afraid of the drill instructor. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of being prepared for war, tell us about your marriage. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so you met your wife while you were stationed in the Philippines, correct? Yes. I was stationed in many places in Asia, including Vietnam and so forth, and Burma, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Japan. But uh, I was at the American Embassy in the Philippines. I was an embassy guard. The Every embassy in the world has a marine guards Hmm. um we're trained to do that kind of stuff we're trustworthy i guess (laughs) because there's a lot of money sure in those embassies they're always having to rescue people and well i had night duty that night so if you had night duty there was a little cafe about a block and a half from the embassy it was owned by her sister who was older than her and uh I went down there to have a cup of coffee and, a, you know, some breakfast or something. And place, it was almost empty. Early in the morning, it was like 6 o'clock. And there's this real pretty little girl sitting there. So I went over, and it was a little bar that you sit down and ate. Mm. And she's sitting there by herself, and there's nobody around her. So I was kind of bold and walked over and sat down in the chair next to her. <laughs> and she looks at me like, who are you? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. And I introduced myself. I said, hi. And she had a loaf of bread, warm bread, and she was slicing it and putting butter on it. And that's what she was eating. Hmm. So she gave me a slice of that bread and we became good friends right then. And I said, well, I got the whole day off. I said, would you like to go to a movie this afternoon? And she had never been to a movie in her, in her life. Wow. Uh, so I took her to a movie, and in fact, it was an American movie. Um, the Philippines just—they love everything American. American men. Yep, American <laughs> men. So uh, started uh, asking her out to the movies and going to dinner and so forth, and fell in love with her. And 
about a year into our relationship, the embassy was trying to get me to break up with her. Oh, wow. Because you're not allowed to marry a foreign person if you're working at the embassy. Oh, okay. Because of security. There's a lot of top secret things going on and they don't want people to know about. Yeah. So they tried to break us up. That didn't work. So they transferred me with 24-hour notice to another country, to Burma. Wow. Yeah. 24-hour notice. Yeah. Wow. So I had to uh, say my goodbyes to her, and uh, we're thinking that we'll, we'll probably never see each other again. So I went to Burma. Wow. And then they sent me, while I was in Burma, I'd go to Vietnam because Vietnam was having some problems. The war was just getting going. Mm-hmm. And the embassy was being attacked uh, every two or three days, throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails and things like that. So they told me, he said, well, uh, Corporal, you need to get over there and help with the guarding that embassy because it might be overrun. Mm -hmm. So I went, transferred over there and stayed there for uh, less than a month because things calmed down. They sent me back to Burma. And while I was in Burma, I was in the jungle and I was asleep, and one night something bit me on the neck, and it really hurt. <laughs> and I hit my neck with my hand and killed a big uh, bug. It was a spider, hmm. and it happened to be deadly poison. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I got to where I couldn't breathe. And I woke up my uh, one of the other Marines and told him I couldn't breathe. I said, you need to get me to a hospital. So they took me to the one hospital in uh, Rangoon. And they had no virus or no medicine for mm-hmm. that virus, that particular spider. He said, well, you got a good chance of dying here in the wow. next uh, 24 hours. So the embassy owned a DC-3 plane which was built in 1930s. (laughs) And they flew me over to Thailand because the uh, U.S. Air Force had just built a hospital in Rangoon, Burma, because they knew there was going to be a big war. Wow. So I said, well, this is nice. I didn't even know they had a hospital over here. So I was in the hospital there 11 days, and they treated me and discharged me from the hospital. And they said, well, you can stay and walk around in Rangoon or in uh, Bangkok for two days and then fly back to Burma. So I walked out to the uh, Air Force line where the planes take off. Yeah. And typical military. I said, hey, guys, y'all got any planes flying to the Philippines today? We got a cargo plane. We're bringing a bunch of rice and stuff. Can I? And I said, can I catch a ride? Wow. They said, well, climb on. We're fixing to leave in a few minutes. So I hopped on board this freighter, and nobody knew I was coming or going. Wow. And flew to uh, the Air Force Base in the Philippines, which was like 50 miles from Manila, where she lived. So I had to ride a bus called the Philippine Rabbit. It's like a Greyhound bus, Mm -hmm. but instead of a running Greyhound, it's got a running rabbit on the side. (laughs) Okay. And this thing has seats for about 45 or 50 people. And I estimated there was like 90 people on board. Oh, my board. gosh. There was about 15 or 20 people sitting on the roof. Wow. Yeah. And so I was crowded in there. I was the only American in the plane or in the bus. So we drove to Manila. 
and I couldn't find where Dolly was living because she had moved. Oh wow! And I she didn't know I was coming. How long had you been gone at this point? Um, uh, almost a year. Wow! At this point, okay. Uh, so I finally ran across somebody that knew her, and they had me uh, walk with them to where she was staying in a little apartment. And I knocked on her door. She was already in bed asleep. I woke her up, and she comes to the door, and she's looking through the the door and says, who are you? What do you want? Because <laughs> I had uh, not shaved because I had uh, this bandage all over my face. Yeah. And I lost a lot of weight. Wow. So I said, well, you don't know who I am? We're going to get married. She says, I don't even know who you are. So I had to tell her. <laughs> and... I asked her again to marry me, and she said, okay, someday. I said, well, I'm leaving in a, a day and a half, and I want to get married before I have to go back. Yeah. And we did. We went wow. to City Hall and uh, got a marriage license, but the uh, magistrate there was going to marry us. He was a, a, like a judge. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the same laws in the Philippines we do for everything. Really? Yeah, really. Um uh, he says, well, you got a three-day waiting period like you have in the States. I yeah. said, well, i got to leave in a day and a half. Well, you can't get married then. I said, well, if I gave you 50 pesos, would that help? <laughs> 50 pesos was a lot of money for them. Wow. So I gave him 50 pesos, which at that time was about $15. Mm -hmm. And the judge backdated the application by three wow. days. That's so, awesome. <laughs> and uh, so we got married. And... Uh, the very next day, she uh, took me to the air Marine or the Air Force base where we just came from, where I came from, mm -hmm. and she took me back there, and I flew, and it was three more months before I could come back. Oh wow! So okay. I came back, and we had to get married all over again because the Marines would have court-martialed me if they knew I got married without permission. Wow! They own you. Wow! So you can't do things like that. So we got, I got married again, had to get permission for the Marines and all mm -hmm. this. They said, well, you can't get married. You know, she's a foreigner. I said, well, I'm getting discharged in a week in California. So they said, well, because okay. Of the, because of the spider bite. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, I was getting discharged because my list was up. It was almost oh, five, okay. five years. Okay. So I just said I had enough of it. I knew there was a war, a big war, yeah. getting ready to start because they were moving troops in. It was all secret stuff. Was this uh, late 60s, mid 60s? Uh, early 60s early when 60s. it started. Oh, okay. In fact, the uh, French had been fighting there for about 10 years. Right, okay. And right. they pulled out because they couldn't beat them. Yeah. So we lost a lot. of We lost uh, over 60,000 young men. Yeah including some friends of mine wow. in Vietnam. So it was pretty bad. So you were ready to get out. So you, you guys hopped on plane, came yeah. back to the States. Tell us about when did you come to know the Lord and, and how when did it become real for you as well? Well, I was raised at a Baptist church uh, in Ocala, um, which... When I think back on it, it was really kind of surreal because uh, I considered myself a Christian, but I remember when I was like, uh, I guess, 12, 13 years old, 
waiting for church to start, hanging out on the front steps of the church with a couple of my buddies. Mm-hmm. And this uh, black man and his wife and a little girl were walking hand to hand up the steps to come to church. Mm-hmm. And the deacons came out and said, you're not allowed in this church. Wow. So that kind of messed my head up a little bit. I yeah. Said, I said, this isn't right. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't do anything about it. That's just the way it was back then. Yeah. So that, I considered myself a Christian all the whole time, but kind of backslid some when you're in a, a military area like that. And mm-hmm. these guys that you're hanging out with and they're fighting and stuff. And, and every other word is a four letter word. And sure. they curse and talk and drink and yeah. do a lot of other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So, right, yeah, not exactly having Bible studies, you know. No. <laughs> yeah. So we got married, and uh, they discharged me in San Francisco, and I took a Greyhound bus. We took a Greyhound bus from San Francisco to Ocala, which was like five <sighs> days. Oh, man. Yeah. Take, a, reason, take, yeah, take well, a Greyhound bus from Ocala or Orlando, you want to throw yourself out the window. Well, I was a, I was scared. I've never told my mom that I was getting married, particularly to a, a Filipino girl. Yeah. Because that was kind of like a no-no way back. Yeah. So I said, well, we'll take a Greyhound and we'll get a chance to talk about what we're going to say and all this. So, <laughs> yeah. so we, But I had not told her how things were in the South. Yeah. So we get to Texas on the Greyhound and we go into a, uh, they had a restaurant right there at the bus station. And the girl, the waitress looks at my wife and says, she can't eat in here. Wow. So that was a kind of a shock to her. Yeah. She says, what's this all about? I said, well, in the South, they do things a little different than the rest of the world. Because her perception of America was probably like, everybody goes to America, exactly. you fit in. Yeah. Wow. So they said, we don't serve uh, Asians, we don't serve Mexicans, and we don't serve, and they use the N-word, which I yeah. never have liked. Yeah. So that's the way it was back then. And we get to Ocala. And I'm taking her around to show her how to do things. And we went to a Publix, and uh, they had four bathrooms in Publix for white women, colored women, white men, colored men. And my wife says, well, which one of these am I supposed to use? Yeah. And we also found out that she, we were not legally married at that time because uh, Florida had a law against interracial marriages. Wow. You could not marry anybody even if you wanted to. Wow. So, so they, you could be married in another state, come back to Florida, and it's, it doesn't count. Doesn't count. No, you're breaking the law. I had a lot of friends there, and, and uh, one of my good friends I went to school with was uh, in the uh, uh, police. and mm-hmm. So they just let it go, and eventually wow. that law changed. Yeah. So things were different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think it's just so interesting. It's not ancient history. It's not this, no. you know, this you live literally lived through this. So you you guys get back to Ocala and you know, you'd have had this misperception or actually not a misperception. It was a real perception of how the church was and how they treated uh anybody that didn't wasn't white. Um so that probably didn't show you that the grace of God and the this inclusive religion. So at what point in your life did you begin to see Christianity in, in, in its true light? Because I would say what you saw back then was, was horrible and not a representation. Well, when I started, uh, I worked for a, a company uh, after I got out of the service. I got a job working for a company where the owner was a real 
Christian man. Didn't go to the First Baptist Church. He went to, I think, Methodist. Okay. But he was a Christian. And his way of talking about people and things was different than what I'd heard my whole life. Yeah. Uh, he was a real Christian and was nice to all the customers, didn't talk bad about people. Oh. That's that's what did it for you, just seeing the somebody act like actually act like Christ. Right. Wow. Exactly. So took a few years, but we uh joined a church that was just getting started in Ocala. We were one of the first twenty five members. Oh wow. Which now has like six thousand members. Yeah. <laughs> but uh anyway, it made a big difference. And then after we'd gone to that church for about ten years, it'd grown pretty good size. And they were talking about doing a mission trip to Honduras because they wanted to do some mission work and ask for volunteers to go and help build a, a school. Yeah. So I volunteered, which when I think back on it, it was kind of dumb because I'm not good at carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I smashed my finger a few times. Oh, man, yeah. 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 But go to Honduras, and there's this uh, some guy s- sitting on a rock watching us work. And he looked like an American, but he wasn't dressed too much like an American. He had on Honduras-type clothes, kind mm-hmm. of baggy, and a couple of holes in the knee. And so I got to talking to him one day and found out that he was an American missionary that had lived in Honduras for about, at that time, about eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. And he says to me one day, uh, so you're an optician, huh? You do glasses? I said, yes. He says, maybe be great if you could come here sometime and bring a few glasses and we'll go traveling around because nobody gets to stuff like that and yeah. unless you're wealthy. Uh, so there's no medical care out away from the big cities. And so this this guy was actually John Taylor, right? Yeah, John Taylor. So Brittany and I, my wife Brittany, went with Ron and met up with John in, in uh, Honduras in 2015. We went to Copan. And yep. uh, a, a number of those neighboring villages out there. And so, what you you run a nonprofit or small nonprofit for, called Vision for Christ. And yeah. so, what what you do on these mission trips, and this is where it started, was you. I mean, th- thousands of eyeglasses. Um, and so, Brittany and I helped with that as well. And it was Brittany actually like attempted to learn the language, <laughs> was just not cut right. out for her, man. It was it was tough, but. We we put together these. Uh, it looks basically like a ladder. It's like a ladder of glasses that go up. Each rung is essentially a, an eyeglass, and so the prescriptions get stronger or lighter depending on how you go up. So you would go up to um, people would form lines. Like how would they they spread the word like throughout the villages, right? That basically eyeglasses are coming or people. Yeah, well, the uh, John Taylor was very active uh, in all the churches. Yeah, he's non-denominational, but they had. Uh, kind of put so many churches all over Honduras that about half the Catholic churches closed up. Oh, wow. Because people respond, they're Spanish, so they really respond to the music and the dancing in the yeah. in the aisles. And, yeah. Yeah, so it's really a good atmosphere. Yeah, and so you we people from all over the, the city or the towns will, and the villages up in the mountains will come out and you just walk them through these eyeglasses, and you go, es mejor o pejor? And it means, like, is this getting better or worse? And so Brittany's a pro at this. <laughs> I'm just like, es mejor o pejor? And yeah. uh, Brittany introduced me as her wife a few times, like, me nova or esposa? They're like, 
everyone kept laughing. I'm standing there like an idiot. Like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um, well, so you went with John that first time. And so what, so how many, how many of these trips have you been on? Well, Honduras, I've been to countries all over the world. Uh, India, the Philippines, uh, several countries in Africa, Burkina Faso and Kenya. And uh, I've been to about four countries in, in uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. The most popular one I've been to the most was Honduras. I've been to Honduras, uh, the last count was 46 times. Wow. Which is, it yes. got, I've been so <laughs> many times that the last few years when I would go through customs, they would recognize me. <laughs> so, oh, Senor White. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, can I have some glasses from my grandmother? Yeah. yeah. I don't even think I've been to Tampa that many times, which <laughs> some would argue Honduras is nicer than Tampa, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, so 48 times Honduras and then countless times everywhere else. So I, let's talk about that first trip, your first eyeglass trip or missions trip. What happened to you? To, to Because to go 48 times to a country and to serve and just to, I mean, go all throughout the years, something must have just burst through in your heart. Did you see, like, a need, or what did what did God do in you? Well, the first couple of times, it was kind of like uh, the blind leading the blind because yeah. I, I didn't had never done anything like that. Yeah. And, of course, I couldn't do that in the States because, you know, you got to be a doctor to do yeah. eye exams. But Honduras, eh, they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you could do brain surgery if you wanted to. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are you, a mechanic? Yeah, cut this guy open. That's close enough. <laughs> right. That's about the truth of the matter. Yeah. So just a lot of freedom to just go down there and, and yeah. try new things. Yeah. And the people are so grateful when yeah. you give them, uh, particularly the, the ones that were the best re- uh, people for getting glasses were the older ladies, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. 99% of them don't have television or a radio. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, the houses don't, don't even have electricity. Mm-hmm. And they're very strong Christians, and they love their Bible. Mm. And they all carry a Bible that's usually about half worn out, Spanish wow. Bible. But they're all upset because when you get to be a certain age, you can't you can't read anymore. Right. And you just can't hold the the Bible far enough away yeah. to read so you give somebody a pair of cheap reading glasses like a depends you try different strength but like a a plus two or 250 or three or 350 or four and f- eventually you'll get to a point where they go oh oh wow. you know yeah and then the they'll read their bible and they'll start crying wow a lot of them will cry and then you get a you get a nice hug from them <laughs> So that, that makes you feel good. For sure. And the second group that I like are, are the school kids. John Taylor would, he knows when I'm coming, so he would have everything arranged. He would go to different schools, and we would do, wind up doing all the schools in the country practically. He kept a list of where we'd been and when and what we did, and then so we would rotate and go to this school or that school. Yeah. And then we'd do that for a day, then we'd go to another school a mile down the road. And so... Work with the kids was awesome. Yeah. So full of energy and oh, excitement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's one of the best reactions I had with kids was in India. I've been to India several times, and I used to go and stay at this orphanage that had over a 1,000 orphans living in it. Wow. And they did their own school. And so the uh, principal of the school says, I know there are several children that can't really see their books because 
they you could, they're not holding it correctly and they can't they can't read. Yeah. So I said, well, I'll check people that need to be checked. So we would find out who needed glasses, and the ones that really can't see, they would raise their hand and tell you. And so the ones generally, like in a certain area, like uh, age ten. There might be a dozen people, kids in that class that can't see too good. And usually uh, you can make something work. But the younger kids, like age six, seven, eight, nine, particularly the girls, they're scared to death of the foreigner. Hmm. So I couldn't get a reaction from them. Uh, I would say, can you see with uh, this pair or this pair? And they just shake their head, you know. So I was about ready to give up for the younger kids. And my friend um, Mickey Westcote had been with me probably 25 trips to different countries. I said to Mickey, I said, Mickey, let's pray and ask the Lord to show us what to do. Hmm. So we both laid our hand on a box of glasses and asked God to show us what to do. So I reached inside a box and pulled out a random pair of readers. And the first kid I had was a, a young boy, and I put the glasses on him, and he brightened up. He was started reading the paper yeah. that he was holding, and we did that with probably a total of thirty-five kids, wow. girls and boys, different age groups, and every single time, and it was a different prescription that I would pull up. Wow. Because I would put my hand over the box and not even know what I'm grabbing and just reach in there and pull up this pair of glasses. It might be a minus one or a minus two or minus three, minus four, minus five. Mm -hmm. And just the one first one I pull up every time worked. Wow. So after this happened about four in a row, I I looked at Mickey. I said, Mickey, I think we're seeing a miracle develop here. It's amazing. And every single one we pulled worked. Wow. And that wow. was, we didn't ask God to do that. He just did it. Yeah. Step and I'll tell you what, every kid in school knew that story too before we were out of there. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that because, I mean, like we said earlier, like you usually, you go through with people like, which one is it getting better? Is it getting worse? And then you settle on, uh, you know, a prescription that, that'll work for them. I think what you do is so interesting because especially in light of how Americans view missions work. Um, I've been on many mission trips throughout high school and stuff, and we would go and we kind of do the programs and you do skits and you high five the kids a little bit, and then you tell them the gospel and then and then you kind of leave, which is which is important. It's important work, I think. But I love what Vision for Christ does and what you've done over the years with eyeglasses because you're actually providing a service and sharing the gospel through that. And I I think about and so a lot of the perception of how we do missions is like well. People just need the gospel. They need the gospel. They need the gospel, which is true. But I would say if all we're giving them is the gospel, we're missing out on an opportunity um, to really make it impactful uh, through the acts of service. And I think about um, Jesus healing people in his ministry, and then then the sermon would basically come after that, like, go and sin no more after I've healed you. Do you do you share that view? Is that what drove you to to do uh, a lot of what you've done is that service aspect of it the healing aspect of it all yeah you don't try to force uh your religion on them either yeah you just they know who you are and you're just trying to help them with no money involved uh 
you're just doing it because you love the Lord and you want them to be able to see. And they, mm. it comes through to most of them. Yeah. Had a very interesting, one of the trips I had to Africa was in a country called Burkina Faso, which you talk about outer space, that's the closest thing on earth <laughs> to <laughs> outer space. How do you mean? It's run by Muslims that have slaves to this day. Mm. And there was an American missionary there that I became friends with, and we did glasses on a couple of trips around the capital city, which is Ouagadougou. <laughs> and on one of my trips there, like the second or third time, he says, Ron, there's some areas of northern uh, Burkina Faso that no one has ever been to, to do any kind of medical things. I mean, these people live their whole life. They never see a doctor. They don't, they just die. Mm-hmm. So he says, can you come back here uh, in, in a couple of months and we'll bring glasses out there? I said, okay, you got to arrange the transportation mm-hmm. and a, we need a translator because they, none of us spoke their language. They didn't speak English. Yeah. So he, he did all that and I got there and we, we rented a, a four-wheel drive vehicle because there was no paved roads. It was more like goat trails. And we went and... Left at 4 o'clock in the morning, about 8 o'clock we got to this village, and uh, I'm taking the suitcases out of the truck with the frames in it, the glasses, and this chief of the village comes walking over. I knew he was a big shot because he had on blue robes and a hat, Hmm. a blue hat, and he had his hands in his pockets, and there were some kind of robes, and so he, he comes over, introduces himself, and through the translator, he says, I'm the the chief of this village and what are you doing here aren't you american and we said yes of course he says well if you don't leave my village right now i'll have you killed wow and so my translator that we hired was freaking out he says we, we gotta go because i don't want to get killed these guys yeah. don't mess around yeah because they have slaves in that village and i told the guy i said i'm not leaving we drove four hours yeah. on bad roads, and I'm not leaving. The Lord wants me to be here. Wow. So I had a pair of sunglasses. I get donated sunglasses all the time for these drugstores and so forth. Mm-hmm. Pulled out a pair of brand-new sunglasses and gave them to the chief. He puts them on, and the next thing you know, he's hugging me. He's, thank you very much. Uh, had he not had sunglasses before? No, wow. no. He knew what they were because he really liked them. He's looking all around. He's mm. Mr. Cool. <laughs> and he says, through the translator, you can stay. Wow. So I would say, great. Wow. So we spent all day checking eyes, giving glasses out. Uh, the chief had a guy uh, ride a bicycle to the next village to bring people over that needed exams. So wow. uh, he was helping out there. It was almost dark. And I said, well, we looked like we've done everybody that needed glasses in the village. Let's hit the road because we've got a four-hour drive to go back yeah. uh, through uh, lion country areas. And oh, wow. Not a, it wasn't a tame lions either. It was wild lions <laughs> and stuff. So. Now the Lion King was. Yeah. Right. I said, well, we're going to be leaving. So the translator tells him what I said. And he says, well, I, I need to get glasses for my father. I said, okay, well, run get him because we want to get out of here pretty quick. So he goes and gets his father, and here he comes leading his father by the elbow. 
and he gets close, and I'm looking at him. He's blind. Hmm. He has cataracts that are fully developed, which you never see that in the U.S. because we all have access to cataract surgery. It's a, it's a simple surgery, yeah, right? Simple. Yeah, simple. But these people never see a doctor for anything. How do you develop cataracts? It's just uh, from being out in the sun, and it's just part of getting old. Your eyes I, drying out. Your eyes drying yeah, out. Yeah. And, uh, well, his eyes were just plain white, so he couldn't see. And I'm thinking, I said, well, i got to tell this guy that wants to kill us that I can't help his father. And the Lord checked me and says, pray for him. So my, my uh, missionary friend, Bob, Dunphy and I, we each laid one hand on one of his eyes and prayed for about three or four minutes in tongues, and I could feel things happening. Wow! And when I we took our hands down, the cataracts weren't there. Wow! And the old fellow that was blind, first thing he does, there's a bird flying overhead, and he's following the bird with his finger, and he's pointing at a cow. And he's just yak, 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 yak. And this chief that was going to kill us says to me with the translator, how did you do that? And I said, we didn't do this. I said, Jesus Christ did this. Wow. Yeah. And then I handed him some literature that I had gotten from uh, Ouagadougou in his language, not the language in that part of of, Ken, of uh, Burkina Faso, but where he lived. Yeah. So they had his language already made out. And, and so I gave him that and he's looking at it. And I told uh, Bob and uh, driver, I said, well, I think we better hit the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> press your luck. <laughs> Didn't want to press my luck. Yeah. <laughs> so we did, but I know we planted the seed there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there were dozens and dozens of people that know because they're all watching In these villages, no matter where you are, there's nothing else to do. They don't have television or whatever. So anything comes to town that's different. Yeah. Everybody's there watching. Yeah. Well, that's just an amazing story of, to think of the darkness that was there and then you know, to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to not just like, we'll go there, any, but like lay hands on the chief's father. I mean, yeah. it's amazing to me. And I, I think it's interesting that you, you do this work, um, have done so much work that is not just in word, you know, we often hear about preaching the gospel in word, but it also in deed. And then I think about even just your story of finding Christ was through somebody that was just living, living it out, you know, and I think it's important that we have our, our doctrine is sound and that we study the Bible. But if, if we, if it never turns to action, then it's just kind of knowledge. And, right. uh, so what advice would you give to anybody that might be listening? That's had a heart for missions, you know, how can they get started? And, and do you see opportunities, um, or places that are in need that you would recommend, or even just maybe locally, maybe we, you know, especially right now with quarantine going on, COVID, it's hard to get on a plane and go. But, you know, just any advice for anybody that, that feels a stirring in their heart for missions work? Yes. There's a church that I, I don't attend, but I know where it is, near Ocala, that uh, in their parking lot, as you're leaving church, they have a sign posted there that says, you're now entering the mission field. Mm-hmm. Right. So... You don't have to travel overseas to be a missionary. Just uh, when you talk to people, just talk about uh, how you feel so lucky and blessed that uh, we have a Lord that watches over us and you can ask him for help. It's like 
if you want to do mission work overseas, make sure you're involved with a church that does that kind of thing. Some churches don't. Yeah. But if you get a church that believes in that and, and wants it, then you should maybe attend that church and talk to some of the people that have been, where they go. Some churches specialize in a country like Honduras or Nicaragua or okay. you know something like that. And they usually have it down pat. And usually you'll go like for a week or 10 days, uh, 12 days. I think the longest I was ever out of the country was three weeks on one trip. But you can get a lot done. Yeah, uh, it'll change your it'll change your perspective on Christianity. Yeah, for the rest of your life, when you see people that really appreciate what you're doing, it just makes you feel so good. Yeah, and you're not making money on it or anything like that. It's just you're. It's like Christmas every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it, and and just to even see like I I think sometimes we wonder, and I love the stories of the miracles you have, and I know you got plenty more we could talk about. I think sometimes in the States we rely too much on our medicine and our knowledge and it's not bad. Obviously we need doctors and stuff, but when you go overseas, you're like, okay, God's got to show up or we have no other option. And I think about that in our own yeah. life to, to live with that expectation. On God. That's how we should live is like God has to show yeah. up because we rely so much on our own strengths. Yeah. And so that you're in those situations a lot, huh? Right. Well, there's, there's another trip I was on to, uh, uh, it was Burkina Faso again, but it was in a different area. And we went to this area. They did have a couple of little Christian churches built out of mud <laughs> yeah. there. And the pastor was upset because he had one of his uh, members of his church. And the church probably had 75 members. It wasn't a big church. Mm-hmm. But she had a lot of stomach problems. And she went to the witch doctor, which they still believe in. Yeah. And the witch doctor said, well, if you give me some money, I, I'll give you some medicine that will cure you. Hmm. So she gave him money, and he had her take some pills and stuff, and she developed, she was spitting up blood oh, wow. and severe pain. She's crying. When we were there, she's crying. So Bob and I prayed for her, and really prayed for her for a couple of times and she started spitting up the things that she had swallowed wow the first thing she spit up i'll never forget this was a double-edged razor blade oh my the kind like men used to shave with yeah oh my gosh i mean razor blade yeah uh she had swallowed uh rocks uh a couple of buttons that people had given her to swallow that they were going to make her well. So we prayed for her. And after we did, she started spitting these things up one after the other. I mean, a bunch of things. And we found out after we left, uh, about a week or two later, she was totally well. Man, praise God. She should have died. Yeah. Swallowing razor blades. And yeah. Nails. Man, that's amazing. And that's stuff that doesn't happen. I mean, my dog Walter's in the room with us right now. I remember when he ate a plate of brownies. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get him to throw it up, and we had to induce that. It's just, I think these stories are so amazing. And, and how can that not change your whole life? And how, how, can, how can that not affect the way you see God when you see exactly. him operate in a real way? And, you know, you don't really know when you go to one area to another what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you just got to be prepared. Yeah. We had... Uh, 
Oh my goodness, where was this? This was uh, an area in uh, Kenya, which is a coastal area of uh, Africa. And when you get off the plane, there's these uh, big, tall buildings like you see in New York or whatever. It's, that part's modern. But as soon as you get 10 miles out on the road, you're seeing people that are living in huts mm. and carrying spears. But I did take a picture of one <laughs> one gentleman. Uh, I see this guy wearing the African outfit, you know, and the, the headdress that he was had a, a spear mm-hmm. with a point on it. And I said, oh, that's cool. And we pull up behind him and start going around him. And he's holding that spear in his right hand. And he had his left hand talking on his cell phone. Hmm. <laughs> Which yeah. that was really kind of yeah. like, whoa. The merging of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> times there. But, uh, we were in Kenya. So the local pastor was somebody that I'd been friends with because I'd met him a couple other times. He wanted to take us to an area that had never seen a white person. So I said, okay, you know, how yeah. bad can that be? Yeah. So we go uh, out to this area where there's still people. We went to this one village. We had a driver that we paid to take us out there, and he's going to wait on us all day long and drive us back. And my missionary friend paid him up front and i said i don't think i would have done that because you don't you can't trust someone <laughs> like that mm. hey oh he's i've known him for years he'll be okay so we're doing glasses all day long in this village and people you know they have a fire going with a big pot and there's some kind of animal in that and there's guys that had their lips pierced with bones with sticks and stuff oh. actually going into the flesh and gave glasses to a bunch of them and they already had that evening all planned out they were going to the next village to steal the cows that these people had stolen from them Whoa. and they said well we'll probably have to kill three or four of them I said oh okay uh, so I got a lot of photographs and all this so we had to walk back to where the guy was going to be waiting for us. It was like 45 minutes down a path. So we're walking 45 minutes, and there's monkeys in the trees, and there's animals growling that you can hear over in the bushes. Oh, gosh. And, and then it gets dark, and we're carrying a flashlight. <laughs> and we get to where this guy was waiting on us, and he's not there. Oh, man. He got afraid and left. And I <laughs> oh, said, I told you you shouldn't have paid this guy up front. <laughs> So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to sit down under this tree over here and drink some water and eat our candy bars and stuff. And we'll just sit there all night till the next day. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I'm sure somebody will come and pick us up or something will happen. We might get killed. (laughs) So we're sitting there like two hours. Oh, my gosh. And the really interesting thing about this is one of my best friends at the church back in Florida woke up in the middle of the night. Local time in Ocala was like 11.45. And he says, he calls my brother Wade and says, I think your, your brother's in trouble in Africa. Wow. And he, Wade says, well, how do you know? He says, I, I just know. And sure enough, when we got back and we checked the time thing, 
Yeah. Exactly the time that Amazing. we were going through this with the uh, yeah not showing up. But anyway, so we're sitting there and it's dark and we got a little flashlight. And here comes a truck, a big, heavy truck, military truck, the Kenyan Army. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And this colonel spoke English because he learned to speak English and the U.S. trained him in uh, an army uh, post somewhere in the States. And he says, what are you white people doing out here in the middle of the jungle? He says, this village has got a bad reputation. They've already killed three of my men in the last month. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And he says, you, should, you probably would have been killed if you stayed here all night. <laughs> so... That really freaked us out. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we, uh, he agreed to take us in the truck back to civilization. Wow. He says, you can't stay here because they will probably kill you. Yeah. So we're loading up on the truck and we're driving back and it's been raining now and there's mud puddles and the truck can barely get through them. And we come to a place where it was really, the truck couldn't even hardly go. So four or five of the uh, military guys jump out and they're going to push the truck. And one of them handed me a submachine gun to hold. Huh, <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. Back in the Marine Corps. Yeah. So they pushed the thing out of there and we went on back to town uneventfully after that. Yeah. But uh, that was someday there. That was really, yeah grace of God that kept us from getting Amazing. killed. I love that. That's, that's mind blowing. That, it was that, funny in a way. Yeah. But well, it's, it's funny not, now. Now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, uh, my wife was with us on this trip cause she used to go once in a while on certain trips. Yeah. And, uh, cause she had always said she wanted to go to Africa. So I took her, but <laughs> she was sorry. She went after. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I thought we'd go on like a nice safari. Yeah. Like stay. I'd be staying in an air conditioned yeah. hotel. Have, <laughs> yeah. My husband's on the, <laughs> On the run from God not, knows what. Not sleeping on a dirt floor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love that. Oh, thank you so much for for taking the time to tell. And and um, you know, I I love the the commission to all of us listening that the gospel just can show up and and when we when we just pray and expect and live expectantly and live completely relying on God. Um, I think that's so encouraging and, and to know that, yeah, our mission field is not that far away. It's, it's right where we are. Yeah. Um, but, but also I think it's encouraging to, to take a chance at some point in the future, like go out there and like, like when you first got started, you didn't know what you were doing. You're just kind of going and, and, and God has shown you the way right. since. Yeah. I only planned on doing one trip and I've wound up, uh, putting glasses on a little over 110,000 people. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Actually, before we go, there's a story you've told me before that I promised my college buddies uh, I would get you to record. Uh, you were stationed, I, I believe, in the Philippines uh, as a Marine, and you were guarding a specific president. Could oh. you walk us through this story? Uh, that would have been Hong Kong. Okay. And it was the current vice president, of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Uh, the president was John Kennedy. And these politicians, I've worked in embassies for three years out of my five years in the Marines. And there's always a politician coming for fact-finding trips. <laughs> All they want to do is party. Yeah. And 
Lyndon Johnson came to Hong Kong on a fact-finding trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was assigned to stay with him. for He was there three days. I had to stay with him, and he had Secret Service with him also. And it was me and another Marine. So we took t- shift turns. So he's in the, in the penthouse of this hotel, and I hear talking coming from his room. He's not supposed to be with anybody else. And finally I hear a young girl laughing <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so he's enjoyed himself yeah and he opens his door and i'm standing next to his doorway and he says what are you doing standing here i said well sir um corporal white and i was told by the secret service because they're downstairs getting something to eat hmm. well actually they were downstairs drinking <laughs> but tax dollars at work everybody <laughs> yeah so uh they they said told me to stand here in front of your door. He says, "Well, I don't want anybody standing in front of my door." He says, "Go down and stand in front of the elevator." So I said, "Yes, sir, Vice President." You yeah. know, he outranks me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just a corporal. Yeah. So I go and stand in front of the door of the elevator, and uh, about twenty thirty minutes later, one of the Secret Service guys comes by because they're checking on me about every half hour and. He says, what are you doing standing down here by the uh, elevator? I said, well, he told me to go down here. Well, we don't care what he told you. You go back and stand in front of his door. (laughs) I said, okay. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And sure enough, I wasn't there more than 10 or 15 minutes that he opened the door and saw me there. And he said some four-letter words that as a Marine, I was even embarrassed. (laughs) <laughs> to hear, so, so he said, "You get back down there and don't you dare come back up here." And he's got this young girl in there, yeah. probably secretarial work, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fact finding about eleven o'clock at night. Yeah. So anyway, I'm down there standing in front of the elevator again, and a Secret Service guy comes up and says, "I told you to go stand in front of his door." I said, "Yeah, but he told me not to, and he outranks you and me. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going back down there." Yeah. <laughs> he, he might have shot me. Yeah, I know, right? That's <laughs> so, amazing. And then future president right there. Yeah, very much so. He was he was a real jerk. Yeah, he, he seems uh, very he seemed like he was very gruff and like I mean He was and he yeah. cursed all the time. Yeah. And one of the Secret Service guys I got to be acquainted with him pretty much, he hated him. He says he's a real jerk. When we're uh, out in a restaurant or something and he wants to go to use the bathroom, he makes one of us go in and flush the toilet because <laughs> he won't do it. Wow. Yeah. Just his power move. Like I'm the king. Yeah. I might have to steal that. That's a pretty good method there. Assert <laughs> my dominance. <laughs> right. Awesome. 